So when I was in the fourth grade, I was sitting in Mrs. Mayflower's class across from Brittany. And I just gotta say, as a fourth grader, Brittany was as cool of a girl as you could be. And I remember Brittany and I, over the next month, getting to know each other and talking with each other, and then all of a sudden, something really magical happened. Brittany and I started playing footsies underneath the table, where we're literally kicking each other's feet underneath the table. Now, if you can remember and rewind all the way back to fourth grade, you know that when you start playing footsies with someone, the natural next step is you just get married. I mean, that, that's just like, that's how it works for a fourth grader. And on one Friday, I remember Brittany saying, hey, Eric, you should come over to my house because I have a trampoline in my backyard. She said, my mom puts Capri Suns and fruit roll-ups in our pantry. You should come over and hang out. And I thought, well, those are my favorite food groups and my favorite drinks, so yes, I'm gonna be there. So mom and I jump in the minivan. We head over to Brittany's house. My mom and Brittany's mom are talking. Brittany and I are jumping on the trampoline, just drinking as many Capri Suns as we could, having the fruit roll-ups, and then all of a sudden, Brittany says, hey, Eric, let's go get our rollerblades on and ride down to the bottom of the street. So we get our rollerblades on, we cruise to the bottom of the street, and all of a sudden, I realize there's no parents around. And Brittany looks me in the eye and she says, Eric, close your eyes. And I'm thinking as a fourth grader, I'm gonna get my first kiss. Like, I've only kissed mom up to this point. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know what this is going to mean for me. Maybe I'll become a man at this moment. And so I, I close my eyes like she told me to, and I, I hold my hands out thinking I'm gonna get a kiss. And then all of a sudden, Brittany, while my eyes were closed, grabbed two clods of dirt, dumped them in my hands, and I opened my eyes, and, and she went, ha, 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 and then skated away. And it was, it was the weirdest moment. But I just thought, I, maybe this is what girls are like. I, I don't know. Well, the next Monday, after such an incredible Saturday, I showed up to school so excited. But on this specific Monday, Mrs. Mayflower had changed our seating desks, our assignments where we were. And all of a sudden, I was over on the other side of the room, and Brittany was all the way over there. And I remember, as a little fourth grader, all the way over here, Brittany all the way over there, I looked underneath her table and noticed that Brittany was playing footsies with David. And this crushed me, like absolutely crushed me. I remember literally experiencing heartbreak. And you know what the saddest part of this whole story is? Is this, that happened like 25 years ago maybe. And every time I tell that story, I still feel a little anger towards David. I still can remember what it felt like to be rejected, to, to, to feel like Brittany was playing footsies with David and, and not with me. My, my little heart broke. You see, the reality is this. Sin lingers. Pain and brokenness linger. That, that things are not okay in our world. If you've been watching the news at all this week as we are praying for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine, but really all around the world, you know that whether it's in our country or around the world and even in our own hearts, things are not okay. And it's because at the root of the problem of the world 
is sin. And sin is any time you and I, with a thought, a word, or an action, do something, think something, say something that is not aligned with God's thoughts, with God's desires. Anytime we try to dethrone God and put ourselves in his place, anytime we think that we know better than God, we are engaging in sin. And here's the devastating reality of sin. Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. It'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay and it will cost you more than you wanted to pay. Some of you now, maybe if you're, if you're thinking about your life during this pandemic, there are things that you're engaging in now websites you're looking at, behaviors you're participating in, addictions that have just come off the rails, secrets that you're keeping that you would have never had at the beginning of the pandemic. Or maybe there's been a major switch in your life and and you've chosen to just do whatever you wanna do, to abandon God's best for your life and you've experienced how sin, oh, it takes you so much farther than you ever wanted to go. It keeps you longer than you wanted to stay and it will cost you more than you were ever willing to pay. But here's the good news. Today, as we continue our Seeing Jesus Through the Eyes of Luke series, we're gonna look at Jesus who talked about and taught about and told a story about how God responds to our sin. You see, Jesus painted a beautiful picture of God. Our big idea to begin is this, the greatest illustration of God's love for you is I believe found in this amazing story that we find ourselves in today. Find me if you have your Bibles with you, wherever you're watching from, or maybe you're listening, you're on a jog right now, you're out with the family, you guys are driving somewhere, or maybe you're at home in your living room or watching from your bedroom. I wanna encourage you to get out a Bible, to flip open a Bible and find me in Luke chapter 15, where Jesus tells an incredible story at a very intentional time. The story begins like this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable, and we're gonna stop here. One thing I love about Jesus is that he was willing to eat with anyone. In fact, in Luke chapter five, verse 30, Jesus is criticized for eating with sinners. In Luke chapter seven, verse 36, Jesus is eating with Pharisees and religious leaders. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus is eating with a prominent, well-known, influential Pharisee. And then here in Luke 15, Jesus is again eating with people classified as sinners in his day. You see, Jesus was willing to enjoy a meal, have a conversation with anyone. Can I ask you a question, especially if you're a follower of Jesus? Are you willing to do the same? Are there people that you have decided, I will not take a meal with them. I will not have table fellowship with them. I will not break bread with them because Jesus seems to value what can happen when people break bread, when people talk, when people sit across from each other. But on this occasion, there's something special going on. Because you see in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is not just eating with sinners and tax collectors, but Jesus is also in the presence of religious leaders. Now, Jesus has both of these groups 
in his presence. And you got to understand this about the first century culture that Jesus was in. The religious leaders believed that God loved them because of all the things that they did for him. It was their own self-righteousness. While the sinners and the tax collectors and those that were outside of the religious community of Jesus' day, they believed God could never love them because of all the things that they've done that were in their past. And so both of these groups of people have a short-sighted, bad vision and picture of who God is. And so knowing that both these audiences are present, Jesus chooses to tell too many parables and then concludes with the story, a parable that you and I are gonna look at today. And the story goes like this. Find me in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. Pause, click pause right there because something profound just happened. Jesus has begun a story and I can imagine that everyone gathered around is eating and drinking and having some side conversations because they were used to Jesus telling stories. But Jesus being the master storyteller that he is, wanting to give an illustration of how great God's love is for you and I and everyone that would hear this story, he includes this provocative detail. When he says, the younger son said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. Everyone in the ancient Near East in the first century context that Jesus was telling this story in would have immediately stopped mid-bite, mid-drink, mid-conversation. Eyes would have focused acutely on Jesus because this was unheard of. You see, for a younger son to talk to his father like this was so uncommon, was so unexpected, was so scandalous and so rude because you see, the younger son was essentially saying to his dad, hey dad, I wish you were dead because your value to me is what you'll give me when you die. And so I wish we could just get on with that. You see, in fact, in this culture, in this day, it was more common for an older brother to take any concerns that, other, that the other kids had to the parents. But on this occasion, the younger son does not care about any family rituals or practices. He's not interested in being respectful and kind. He simply says, Dad, I want your money. Have you ever been disrespected like that? Have you ever felt like somebody just completely treated you horribly? You see, as Jesus is telling this story, it's important that we don't just identify with the father, but that, that we identify as the younger son as well. That Jesus is saying, this is what our sin has done. That th this, is, this is what, when, when we choose to sin, when we choose to rebel against God, it's like we're saying, God, I don't trust you. I'm just interested in what you can give me. Everyone listening to this story would have gotten real quiet because they had no idea where it was going next. So the father divided his property between them. Again, that makes no sense. Let's, let's continue with the story. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. In other words, the father said, okay, if you wanna go, if you don't wanna be a part of my family, if you don't wanna be in relationship, I'm not gonna force you to be here. You see, God is not coercive or dominating or he's not going to control you and force you to choose him. And he doesn't do that to me. Not long after that, oh, let's go to the next verse, verse 14. After he had spent 
everything. There was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. You see, here's, here's, here's where the truth is shared with us that though sin, though choosing to go about life our own way promises us a feast, promises us festivities, promises us something fun, the reality is sin always leads to famine. Let's go back to that last verse. It always leads to famine. This is where God's honest with us and says, I don't want you to choose sin. I want you to choose me because your sin, though it promises you feasting, will always deliver famine. That is the dead end of sin every single time. Well, the story continues, verse 15. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. For a first century Jewish person hearing this, this was an, an unimaginable job, something that you would never brag about to your parents, something you would never want others to know that your kids had chosen to take on as a profession. You see, he has hit an all-time low. Let's go to verse 16. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he comes up with this speech. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll apologize to my dad and then I'll say, dad, I, I, I'm not worthy to be your son. Just take me back as a hired servant. So the story continues in verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. No, 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 he, he should be filled with anger. He should be filled with, I told you so. He should be filled with disgust. How could this son return after so offending him? The story, the illustration of God's love for you and I says that this father had compassion. In the Greek, which is what this uh, text was originally written in, the word there for compassion in Greek is splenomai. It, it's literally, there's a, there's a biblical picture, especially in the New Testament, when you read the word compassion, that compassion is, is that, that thing that starts in your gut, that starts deep down inside of you, where you see somebody hurting, experiencing pain, experiencing life, not the way God intended it, and, and you have a desire to help, you have a desire to meet a need, but then biblical compassion always results in action. It starts at a gut level where God is turning something within you and then it results in doing something about it. And that's exactly what this father did. Filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. This, this was a response that the younger son certainly could never have imagined. And everybody listening would have thought, what is going on? This dad has literally lost his mind. Well, from their perspective, it gets even crazier. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It, it, in my Bible, at, at that point, I just put a dot, 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 because notice the younger son didn't finish his speech. Remember, at the end of that, he's supposed to say, so take me back as a hired servant. But this father, this picture of who God is, the God that you and I are invited to follow, he, he had heard enough. The father responds, like this, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, in the first century, when Jesus told this story, those three items that the father gave his son would have just wrecked everybody. I mean, there just would have been emotions all over the place because they had significance. You see, in the first century, when a dad would give his son a robe, it meant that son was important. That son was, was valuable. When a dad would give him the ring, it meant that he had purpose, that he had leadership, that there was a role for him in the family. And then the sandals, oh, the, the major difference in that household between the servants and the sons were who was wearing the sandals. And so this picture of God, this, this, this picture Jesus painting is of this dad who says, you're important and valuable to me. You have purpose and you're one of my kids. And some of you listening right now, maybe your view of God is, man, he, he loves you because of all the things you've done for him, but you live in this incredible fear that someday he'll reject you. Or maybe you're with this group and you just go, God could never love me because of all the things that I've done. Allow this illustration of Jesus to tell you and to remind you that God loves you, that God sees you as important and valuable, that God has purposes and plans for your life and that God wants you to be one of his kids. He wants you to be a part of his family. You see, this, this story is mind-boggling to me because I, I think about when my oldest son, Charlie, was born. It was our first kid, and, and I remember as soon as he was born, they, they put him in this like little like heating tube. Like It's the same things we do for lizards. Like You put a lizard under a heating rock, and they, they warm up. Well, that's what you do with babies. So, so Charlie's sitting there in this little bassinet, and they've got this, this lamp on him that's helping to warm up his body. And I remember looking at him, and, and I just had this thought. Let's say somebody walked in the door right now and said, it's either your life, Eric, or his. Either you die or he dies. I remember after knowing Charlie for 30 seconds, thinking to myself, it wouldn't even be a question. I'd sacrifice my own life for this kid. But you see, at, at that point, Charlie had never hurt my feelings. He had never, never done anything wrong. He, 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 was, he, he was beautiful and, and, and felt flawless in that moment. But this dad has been incredibly insulted by his son, and yet he welcomes him back. He runs to him with compassion. Hear this. Your heavenly father, the God that we're talking about today, is running in your direction. That he longs to show you compassion. That he wants to deal with the sin in your life and forgive you, and so that you would know his great love for you. But here's what's interesting to me is Jesus didn't just tell this great story of God's love. Jesus then demonstrated it. You see, the greatest demonstration of God's love for you could be found in what happens a little bit later in Jesus's life. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 19, it says, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and he said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. Jesus makes four predictions. 
that he has no control over. And as a way of saying, guys, if these four things happen, you'll know that I have the power over life and death. You'll know that you can trust me as the only way, the truth and the life. You can trust me that when I say that I came to give forgiveness of sins, that you truly are forgiven. And you can trust that my kingdom, the kingdom I am building that begins with your salvation and forgiveness that will change and transform the whole world is real and is something you can bank your life on. Well, on that last Thursday that Jesus was alive before he rose from the dead, he gathered with his disciples and he broke some bread and and they drank some wine and he said, Guys, this broken bread and and this wine represent my body and my blood that's gonna be spilled out for the forgiveness of sins. And his disciples went, Jesus, we're just getting started. This new thing you're doing is just getting started. What are you talking about? Well, confused, they followed Jesus. Three of them specifically went to a garden with Jesus on that night. And and in this garden, Jesus began to pray and and the historian, the doctor, the researcher, Luke, who, whose gospel we're reading tells us, because he knows from experience that, that Jesus w- was, was in such anguish, that there was such a burden on him as he was thinking about carrying the weight of the sin of the world, that, that in this garden as he was praying, he started to sweat drops of blood. And he cried out to, to his heavenly father. He said, he said, if there's any way to take this cup from me, if there's any way to save all of humanity besides me dying on the cross, then, then let's do that. But not my will be done, but your will be done. Shortly after that, a group of religious leaders and the government arrested Jesus and they began a mock trial. At this event, they started to spit on Jesus and they blindfold him. They they would hit him and strike him. And they would say, if you're truly a prophet, why don't you tell us who's hitting you? You see, the very people that Jesus, the God of the universe, created and knit together are now spitting on him and mocking him. The first thing Jesus said would happen has just taken place. The next morning, he's woken up Friday morning and he's brought before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of that day. And Pontius Pilate is trying to figure out why are these people so mad at Jesus? And and in the middle of that tension, in the middle of that moment, Pilate hears the crowds outside chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate says, okay, crucify him. But before you do, flog him. The second thing that Jesus said would happen. You see, in our text, it often will just say that Jesus was flogged because they knew exactly what that meant. But for us, we got to break that down a little bit. It means that Jesus would have been stripped completely naked and he was tied to a pole with his back completely exposed. Two guards on either side with whips in their hands with nails and rocks on either end, one after the other would whip his back, causing incredible amounts of bleeding and pain while the crowd around him jeered and screamed and chanted. You see, it was very common for somebody who was flogged to die from that painful torture. But that's not what happened to Jesus. After he was untied, he was forced to carry a giant wooden beam about a mile up to the top of this hill. As he gets to the top of it, he he collapses down and they put a giant wooden beam over him and feel for the depression in his wrist and drive a nail through his wrist into the wooden beam. 
He cries out in excruciating pain from this. They feel for the other depression in his wrist, drive a nail through it. One last nail goes through both feet and Jesus is hoisted up and his crucifixion begins. The gospel of Mark, the historical account of Mark says that Jesus for six hours was trying to catch his breath. As he lifts himself up, he experiences excruciating pain in his feet. As he exhales, he experiences excruciating pain in his wrist. He does this for six hours. And I, I use the word excruciating intentionally because we get our English word excruciating from the Latin word, which means ex, which is ex cruciare. And ex cruciare literally means out of crucifixion. You see, the picture that comes to mind with somebody being crucified is excruciating pain. And yet as Jesus is trying to take his breath, he looks out at the crowd and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You see, this is the greatest demonstration of God's love for you and for I. And then finally in John 19, it says that Jesus cries out one last time, it is finished. He, he says it is finished because he, he's saying it is finished that sin will have the final word over my people's lives. It, it is finished that sin will separate people from God. It is finished that Satan will win the war for the hearts and souls of people, that sin has been defeated because sin has been absorbed and taken on by Jesus in our place. But maybe you're going, I, I, don't, I just don't get it yet. Well, I, I, I want to show you something and maybe this, maybe this will help. So here's the thing. A lot of times when we think about sin, we think it's something we did last weekend. We think it's, it's that thing that I'm so glad nobody posted about or, or my parents didn't find out about. But the way the Bible talks about sin is that you and I are literally slaves to it, that, that we're, we're chained up and handcuffed to it. And so, Ian, I, I want you to think of this luggage right here as your sin. And those of you watching from home, I want you to think about this represents your sin. Now, the way the Bible talks about it is that you and I, let's say, Ian, have you ever been handcuffed at church before? No. Well, there's a first <laughs> for everything. So the way the Bible talks about it is that you and I are literally handcuffed to our sin. So we usually try to deal with it in one of two ways. The first thing we try to do is, is we try to hide our sin from others. So here's what I want you to do, Ian. I want you to try to hide your sin from everyone watching at home. Go ahead. Now, here's the thing. Ian, super gifted young man, amazing at a lot of things, really bad at hiding his sin, just like you and just like me. We can all still see it. The other thing that you and I try to do is we try to run from our sin. We try to switch friend groups, uh, switch social media accounts, leave behind that person. The problem with that is, well, as you'll see, Ian, I want you to try to run from your sin. Go ahead and try to run from your sin. Okay, now the Olympics just happened and, and you really should have tried out, but when it comes to this, you're just not good at running from your sin because everywhere that Ian went, his sin went with him. And so what happens on the cross is that Jesus does for you and I what no boyfriend or girlfriend or salary could ever do for us. That Jesus literally takes your sin and my sin from us and he puts it on himself and he frees us so that you and I could know his forgiveness and you and I could live for him. Does that kind of make sense, Ian? All right, cool. You see, God 
prioritized your life over his own life. That, that Jesus held nothing back to win you back. But this is the third thing Jesus said would happen. There was one more prediction, and it was that he would come back from the dead. And you see, if Jesus didn't come back from the dead, then he's, he's just a liar or he was out of his mind. But if he did come back from the dead, then he truly is Lord. Then, then, then he can be trusted. Then, then he could be the only way for you and I to truly be forgiven, to be saved. And he's the only one whose vision we should follow. You see, God is interested in writing the whole world, in, in using his people to literally help usher in the kingdom of God to make things right the way he wants them as we prepare for the new heavens and the new earth, as we prepare for what God has in store for us. But it begins with our salvation. It begins with us trusting our lives to Jesus. But if he didn't come back from the dead, then you shouldn't trust him. You see, the resurrection is actually the, the greatest evidence of God's love for you. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, it says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In verse 17, it, it says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. In other words, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he didn't die for your sins. But if he did rise from the dead, then you can wholeheartedly, completely convinced, trust that his death and resurrection is all you need to be forgiven, to be a part of his family, and to be sent out into the world to, to show the world how good and loving God is through your words and through your actions. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lays out a number of reasons for why you and I can trust that Jesus rose from the dead, but I just wanna share two of them with you. Number one is this, Paul says that when Jesus rose from the dead, that he appeared to all of his disciples. This is important because on Friday, when Jesus died on the cross, his disciples did not die with him. They loved Jesus, they appreciated him, their lives had been changed by him, but they were not willing to die with him. On Sunday, when Jesus rose from the dead, oh, they saw him with their own eyes and everything changed. This was no longer just an idea, this was reality. And we know that to be true because history tells us that every single one of Jesus' disciples, they were, they were beaten, they were tortured. One of them was crucified upside down. One of them was boiled in oil. Many of them were torn apart from their families. The majority of them died proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. How do you possibly explain that? Other than the fact that Jesus actually came back from the dead. There's no other explanation. But then I think the next one might even be more convincing than that. Paul says that, that Jesus appeared to James. Now, James is the brother of Jesus. And what we learn is that in the gospels, before Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus' brothers and sisters and his family, they thought he was a little crazy. They weren't totally sure. In fact, it's over and over the place that they doubted him that they thought there was something wrong with it. They weren't certain about his message. And yet in Acts chapter 114, after Jesus has risen from the dead, 
we find James praying with the disciples. And then get this, James, the brother of Jesus, ends up writing a letter that, that finds its way into our Bibles in the New Testament. And his letter begins like this, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus. You see, James went from being uncertain about his brother to calling him his Lord. What would it take for you to convince your brother that you are God? Like, how, how would you pull that off? And you see, James was so convinced because he saw his brother come back from the dead that during a political transition of power, James was, was thrown off a ledge by some political and religious leaders. He hit the ground, and this is according to history, a, a mob surrounded him and beat him until he died. Why? Because he couldn't stop and he wouldn't stop telling the world, my brother is my Lord. Now, our last big idea is that in light of the greatest illustration of God's love for you, in light of the greatest demonstration of God's love for you, and in light of the greatest evidence of God's love for you, that there is the greatest invitation to love God in return. Make no mistake about it, the arc of scripture, the arc of the entire Bible is that God loves you. Like he really, 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 really loves you. There's no question in the Bible, does God love you? But there is a question. Will you and I love God in return? I love what uh, Dr. Brian Loritz says. He says, the gospel and religion should never be confused. They are two completely different operating systems. Religion says, I do, therefore I am accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I do. Religious people work for approval. Gospel people work from approval. And the major word that separates the two is grace. In John 3, 16, it says, for God so loved the world. For God so loved you. Yeah, he knows your story. He knows what you've been through. He knows your challenges and your struggles. He knows the ways you've ran from him. He knows the ways others have run from you and abandoned you. He knows the pain you're experiencing. He knows the condition of your heart. And it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that Jesus Christ died for you and I, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And this eternal life is for all of eternity once we die, but it also begins today, that God wants to invite you to live a radically different life where his purposes and his plans and his dreams for your life become your focus. Why? Because he loved you so much that he was willing to die and rise for you. In Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, Paul says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then finally, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is God's truth and this is God's message for you today. I think there's some of you who are watching today who have never begun a relationship with Jesus before. And if you have never said yes to Jesus, this is your moment, this is your opportunity to say, I now believe and know that you really are Lord because you predicted your mocking, your crucifixion, 
your, your, your mocking, being flogged, your crucifixion and your death and your resurrection and you pulled it off and so I believe. And when you give your life to Jesus, when you declare that you are gonna trust him, that he has your loyalty and your allegiance, that you believe he is who he said he is, that Paul says that you will be saved. And so wherever you're at right now, I wanna invite you to close your eyes for a minute. Are you in a relationship with Jesus? If you wanna begin a relationship with Jesus, right now I want you to just pray, God, I believe that you, that you died on the cross and that you rose from the dead for me. That I believe you love me so much that you did that so that I could be in a relationship with you. And so Jesus, I wanna begin following you. With your eyes still closed, maybe there's some of you who, who you knew this message to be true a few years ago, a few months ago, a few weeks ago, but, but recently your life has not been about the gospel, about Jesus. And you're going, I wanna come home. I wanna run back to you, Jesus. You could simply say, God, I want you to be the Lord of my life again. That I trust you, Jesus, and I receive, I've run away like that younger son, but I'm back and I want to know your love and I want to follow you and know that God doesn't hold grudges. He hands out grace. But I think there's one last group out there who, who you're feeling called to something. That after this message, after a gospel presentation, you're, you're aware that, that your neighbors haven't heard you share this with them. That your coworkers, that your friends, that your family, that, that the people you socialize with have not had the opportunity to hear this message like you have. And, and God is calling you to start a nonprofit. That God is calling you to share the gospel with a friend. That, that God is calling you to serve your community. I don't know what God is specifically calling you to do, but I think there's some of you out there who God is right now calling you to something to respond to his gospel. And if that's you, I want you to just pray with me. God, I today am choosing to say yes to the thing that you're calling me to, that I'm choosing to say yes to trusting you because at the end of the day, I want to please you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, if today you made a decision to follow Jesus, you want to join one of our groups, you, you want to start serving at Purpose Church, you want to put action to this decision, I want to encourage you right now to go to purposechurch.com slash next step so we can get you a Bible, so we can get you some resources to help you in your faith and to get you plugged in at Purpose Church.